33rd episode of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. Today, we're slowing it down a bit. I won't be telling a story as much as working through a process, the art of crafting an effective visualization script. I have Dr. Mike Clark with me today. He's a sports psychologist for the University of Arizona. He also owns a private practice called Clark Performance Consulting. Those services will all be linked in the show notes. Dr. Clark ran cross-country at Mississippi State during the pursuit of his 2014 bachelor's degree in psychology. His master's degree in counseling psych came soon after from Mizzou's Columbia campus. My mom always told me, like, hey, uh, if you're going to get a psychology degree, you're going to go to grad school, so just think about it. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, wasn't really exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I started to rule out things I didn't want to do, which was a lot of things, <laughs> as you can imagine, like being a 20 year old, whatever, uh, kid. And, uh, you know, one day I was just, um, honestly getting kind of like a, s- sick of like the whole grad school search process and, um, ended up thinking like, well, what would I just want to do if I could just do anything? And I'm like, well, I'd want to work with athletes and I just want to talk to them. And like, is that even a thing? Uh, so I like, started searching Google. I found that sports psychology was in fact uh, a thing. Um, but, you know, 10 years ago, uh, Division One universities uh, weren't mandated to have folks like me on staff. And so it, we didn't even have one at Mississippi State, you know. And I, I remember talking to my coach about that. And he was like, well, you, you know, go to grad school. And also there's this guy at Missouri, Rick McGuire. Do you know him? I'm like, no, I don't know him. And um so thankful that we were put in, in touch because then ended up going to Mizzou, got my master's in, in counseling with an emphasis in sport. Um, Rick McGuire was um, a seminal uh, person in my uh, just journey, uh, really, as a sports psychologist. And he was one of the people who always pushed me to say, listen, mental performance stuff is awesome and you'll always enjoy it, but you're going to want to work uh, with all parts of the athlete and you'll want to be a person who can help clinically as well as in the performance space. That conversation suggested to Dr. Clark that a PhD would be the natural progression of his skill set. In 2021, he earned his PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. His doctoral internship was done in Norman with the Oklahoma Sooners Athletic Department. It's been a whirlwind since then. Oklahoma was my clinical internship, so spent, um, you know, 40 hours a week doing sports psych stuff. It was mental performance work. It was uh, clinical work. It was consulting with coaches, a lot of work with student athletes, other support staff. Um, and then uh, but just more recently, I uh, accepted the position at Arizona. So I'm a sports psychologist at the University of Arizona. I work within our athletic department uh, doing much of the same things, uh, working with athletes in the clinical and performance space, consulting with coaches, um, and I mean, anything else that just happens to fall into the psychologist's lap. So long answer, but that's, I think, kind of how I got here. CMPC certification, coupled with clinical work experience, allows Dr. Clark to fully immerse himself in all aspects of the athlete mental wellness space. He says that what most would consider performance issues normally trace back to a deeper-seated clinical issue. Now, he's equipped to handle both. How I delineate is if, if a concern is clinical and I use heavy air quotes there because I think the the land the the line in the sand can be blurry for some folks is like for example anxiety before an event um, pre-performance anxiety that's what 
the, the CMPC would want to call it. And sometimes a purely clinical person without any sport experience would want to say, oh no, that, that could be generalized anxiety disorder. That could be other specified, or that could be something very clinical. And so how I delineate it is the level of risk. So if there are, um, you know, suicidal thoughts, self-harm behaviors, things like that, homicidal ideation, that's a clinical space. That's something um, where the, the pure performance work maybe can't be done yet. Um, if there's eating disorder, uh, like symptomology, that's very, uh, very pre prevalent. Uh, that's going to be something where the work is just not not ready to be done. And if it is, it could be in conjunction with a clinical person and a, and a performance person. Uh, also substance use. Um, if substance use is the presenting concern and it's in, impacting our work together or impacting performance, uh, that's gonna be something where a clinical person pro should probably come in. Now, a lot of the stuff can, can be comorbid, right? There can be uh, someone working through um, some, some body dysmorphia or some, some eating related concerns and yet still be cleared to perform. And so a CPC person could come in and still do the confidence, composure, visualization, focus work, whereas the clinical person could be taking care of the other thing. And sometimes that split for athletes is super nice. Um, and so that's how I delineate it outside of here. But again, if, if someone, if a student athlete at Arizona comes through the door, um, you know, we'll, we'll work together unless it's clinically indicated to refer to a higher level of care. When an athlete walks into his office who might not know what the root of the issue is, he asks one simple question. Hey, so I'm gonna, I have a whole bunch of questions that I kind of have to ask you. Uh, but before I do that, I wanna hear in your own words, like what brings you in today? Uh, say it just like that. And uh, from there, what I'm really searching for is where the person wants to begin and where they think the concern, you know, really is manifesting. But also at the same time, I have some, some healthy, amount of, I think, realism that the person may may not want to tell me their deepest, darkest concern in that moment. And that's totally okay. And so, um, yeah, that, that's a big question for sure that I ask. And then I kind of go through and ask about anxiety, depression, eating, sleep, um, substance use, um, other cultural factors that are important to them, the things they value as a person. Um, I might be forgetting one that I'll remember later when I'm trying to fall asleep, but um, those are those are the big ones because after we get through that initial intake, we go right back to that presenting concern. And a lot of times the questions that I asked along the way meld together and 20 minutes on the conversation, um, we can we can kind of be off to the races. His work in Arizona, although protected by confidentiality measures, bleeds into the athlete support sphere. Those equipped to assist the student athlete in anything from academics to nutrition to career counseling to sports psychology are all working together in that space. We look at it as a student athletes in the middle. And so someone like me is on the outside, um, you know, an athletic trainer is on the outside, physician, uh, dietitian, strength coach, um, gosh, I'm missing folks, anyone, oh, academic folks, life skills folks, like these are all people who come in contact with the athlete every single day and probably see the athlete more than I do unless I'm uh, at that practice or something. But again, that athletic trainer is going to see them more than I will. And so sometimes it's the coach reaching out and saying, hey, I think something's going on with so-and-so. Um, would you reach out to them? And sometimes it's the coach literally walking over with the student athlete 
Um, sometimes that's a feel good moment that both are, are saying this is something that could be helpful. And sometimes it's the student athlete feeling um, pushed into it a little bit, uh, you know, and, and that presents its own dynamic. Um, a lot of times a student athlete is the one that ends up reaching out a lot of times via email on our secure network and saying, um, you know, hey, I, I was referred to you guys or hey, I've been struggling with some stuff. Uh, can I talk to someone? It literally just looks like that. And then later on in the conversation, it's like, oh yeah, my athletic trainer told me to email you. It's like, okay. Dr. Clark says that especially at a division one institution like Arizona, the amount of people working towards student athlete success can be anywhere from 10 to 50. During any given week, the student athlete might meet with 10 to 15 of those select individuals. And Dr. Clark says that he keeps an eye on all of those interpersonal relationships. Depending on the athlete's issue, he may question those closest to the student athlete looking for pieces missed in his one-on-one -on -one work. But it's a fine line of confidentiality. You need to know ethics and you need to know when you can talk to someone and when you can't. Um, for so long in the, in the clinical space, it's been um, don't talk to anyone unless there's a formal release signed. Um, and that's still the case. Our, our student athletes do sign a lot of paperwork and they're informed of of these performance meetings that we have. So it's not like anything's going on behind anyone's back, um, you know, but the, the thing that I, I encourage everyone to think about is who was the referral source. And so if, uh, even if the coach or athletic trainer or whoever refers a student athlete to like myself or, you know, one of our, one of our sports like people, the referral source has the right to know that the, the, the client, the student athlete has been followed up with. Uh, that's just a good quality of care uh, kind of component. Beyond that, now it'll depend. So if there are specific uh, eating disorder concerns, we have an EATS team here um, where a dietitian will be there, a physician is, is on that meeting, a psychologist is on that meeting. Um, and, then it, and then it rotates in depending on who the student athlete is and, and what team they're a part of. So the athletic trainer for that team would likely be there. Um, sometimes the strength coach is there, sometimes not. Uh, and, and really this is only the people who come in contact with the student athlete and who are aware of the concern are on that call. So in this case, like the coach would not be on that call. Um, they may say, Hey, thank you for referring so-and-so they did show up for services. Um, I'll take it from here. I'll let you know if we need to rope you in. Usually that's good enough for a little while. Um, Otherwise, it's that team. And, and we talk very openly about, about care and, and how we can try to keep moving forward with things. Um, and then there could be a whole nother one uh, relating to academic concerns. Those are a little bit less uh, HIPAA protected. Um, academics only loosely falls in the clinical space. So uh, those could be like the learning specialists, the academic support, uh, the academic counselors. We have those meetings. So like. Uh, we call them performance enhancement teams, um, and there are many, <laughs> uh, many of those meetings. So I think the big thing is just remembering that, um, you know, to keep the dignity of that person in mind and to respect that person. Those are two of the big five uh, just core ethics codes there, because, um, you know, a, a prime example is on that each team, someone could um, be flagged for an eating disorder and we're talking about that work and we're doing that work and I'm also doing gender identity work with that person 
that's the work I don't need to bring into that space. That work remains confidential because it really doesn't have anything to do. Well, it could have something to do, but it doesn't have everything to do with that eating disorder. And it would be, it would do more harm than good to, to talk about that because I haven't been given the clearance to talk about that. Um, so that that's where it gets murky because sometimes people are like, well, why can't they just blank? And in your mind, you're like, I know why, but that doesn't apply to this, so I can't share it. So then there's a delicate dance to play and all that. As part of the student-athlete's support sphere, Dr. Clark takes his work incredibly seriously. His clients come in presenting serious issues like eating disorders, performance anxiety, and trouble focusing. But sometimes it may be something as benign as the need to feel seen. I wanted to say validation, but it's, it's really not validation. I think a lot of people think that people come to therapy or come to a performance consultation just to be validated, that, to be told they're right. But really, oftentimes it's not. It's, hey, this thing's going on and I don't know what to do about it. And so I think they come to process. I think they come to, to find answers. Uh, whether I'm the one teaching that or not is another conversation because there are specific mental skills that uh, I think can be taught in a rather straightforward manner uh, that can be really effective and definitely helpful. And yet when it isn't a focus thing, an attention thing, a confidence thing, sometimes it's a little bit grayer and even grief work or trauma work uh, in, that, in that regard, it's, I want help, but I don't want you to teach me anything. I just want to be able to talk and process through it. Um, and again, these kind of ends of the spectrum is why I love the work. Because if I had a, if I had all performance work all the time, I would feel like something's missing. I would want to have some kind of clinical feel, maybe a little deeper. Not that performance work isn't deep, because it definitely is. Um, but then the other way too, like sometimes the clinical stuff gets super, super heavy and it's nice to hop into the performance world and be like, where are we with our focus drills? Like, let's get back into that. There's teaching, there's consulting, and then there's the processing, there's the clinical work, there's the reflecting kind of stuff. And so I oftentimes just ask uh, straight up because the, the, the nature of this work is that uh, by the time someone gets, especially outside of a collegiate, setting by the time someone gets to a sports psychologist they're generally ready to work like they're 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 said hey they, a lot of times they've they've gone to someone that they thought they had good online recommendation or something but maybe weren't trained formally in it and they've worked with different coaches and mentors and and finally they get to the psychologist and they're like I, i'm done with everything else like let's just get into it so the reality of it is that a lot of times we end up doing the work within a session or two. And maybe the set the work is done within three, four, five, six sessions, um, you know? And so delineating it is important. Knowing my role is important. So early on, I, I like to just kind of cut the crap and say like, hey, what is it that you're looking for here? You know, we've ruled out a lot of these concerns, especially when they're not clinical. We've ruled out a lot of these concerns. You know, you just want to work through something. Do you want to learn something? And at that point, a lot of times the personality and identity comes through of like, yes, I need to learn how to focus better. Okay, then I'm teaching. Uh, if it's, no, I think I have a pretty good grasp on it. Uh, I just need some guidance along the way. That's consulting. Um, and so consulting to me is 
um, kind of bringing forward some ideas, meeting the client where they are. They can take it on and master it. And it, it's, I'm kind of the sounding board. They can bounce the idea off me. Teaching is, hey, let, let's kind of formally or informally assess where you're starting. Uh, here's how, and I like to inform them, here's how I think we're going to be moving forward. I say think because there's wiggle room a lot of times. Let's assess along the way and let's continue to improve. And then it, it becomes the like, teacher-student dynamic a bit, but I always try to make it a little bit more egalitarian because at the end of the day, as I often tell most of my clients after the first session, we're just two people sitting in a room or two people on a Zoom screen talking. So let's just, you know, find a way to connect. At Arizona, Dr. Clark's consultations have become a hybrid. Some sessions are held in person, but others are held via Zoom. These Zoom meetings, although a solid compromise for the times, tend to shield presenting factors that may have helped Dr. Clark diagnose in the past. Yeah, well, I mean, all the stuff below the shoulders, really. And so, uh, so some, I mean, I guess I can't not clinically say, I mean, psychomotor agitation is the big word, uh, you know, leg jiggling, things like that, um, or leg shaking, I don't know. Uh, that's like a big one that I like totally forgot that people like might be doing in these sessions. Also, like the, you know, a lot of people have maybe their hands together, but like they're down. So like right now you can't tell what I'm doing with my hands. Well, a lot of times people are like squeezing their hands, cracking their knuckles. That can be uh, definitely a sign of anxiety. Um, you know, other just overall body posture. Um, that, that's a big one, you know, where a lot of times the student athlete is in the car uh, they're outside somewhere that they feel is confidential enough or they're sitting in bed or even laying on their bed. Um, and so like, those are all situations that are very atypical, even in sports psychology. I mean, sports, like there's nothing typical about sports psychology as compared to my other clinical peers. Um, you know, and even now that we're back in the office, we're almost as much out of the office meeting you know, student athletes after practice, you're walking on the car in the trenches is the big, you know, sports psych adage, as I know, you know, um, you know, so, but yeah, but I think, I think that like leaning and the like other things where you're like, oh, there's, there's something going on here. We're, we're tense. Uh, it's kind of nice to be able to have all that information again, to be honest. Now that he's primarily back in his Tucson office, one of Dr. Clark's favorite in-person session topics is visualization. He and I worked through the entire process of preparing and following through with the visualization script during this episode. I think that's probably one of my go-tos. Um, how often? Tough to say, um, but I probably find myself going through it at least once a week with one of my student athletes. I mean, sometimes it's three times, three hours in a row, and then you're like, wow, I'm getting good at this. Uh, you know, but, but visualization is awesome because it really does blend the, the neuropsychology worlds with the psychology worlds and biology and all the good stuff. Um, and so I would say often, and I would say more in the performance world than the clinical world, like 95.5 or 90.10 performance over clinical. But sometimes I like to borrow from, from that toolbox too. Dr. Clark emphasizes the information gathering portion of his visualization sessions. He loves when he can imagine the scenario in as clear a detail as the athlete he's working with. 
that's like the info gathering part. And really, I think that's one of the more fun parts of, of the job, because then we get to throw away all of the like formal everything. And it's like, okay, let's, let's try to really hyper-focus on one thing. And so let's use, uh, let's use a pitcher. Uh, this is a, a more recent one. Uh, pitchers go into pretty, pretty important showcase. And, uh, this is somewhere that they they've thrown before, which is a good thing, uh, but they're feeling really nervous. You know, it's really important. It's the timing is kind of having to happen. Okay, fine. So I say, let's go online. You go on Instagram and Twitter, you on your phone, you know where to find it. I'll go on Google and just try to find it. And I literally try to find a picture of the place that they're going to be. Um, because we live in 2021, it's a lot easier than, than you think. Uh, sometimes even obscure tracks in Europe, when we've got someone going overseas, it's like, let's find it. And then can we find a picture from the start line? Yeah, a lot of times we can. Uh, sometimes it's going on YouTube and finding like a virtual walkthrough and just pausing it, getting the screenshot and there, there's the unique picture for the, for the, the client. Um, so getting some, some visual uh, data is really, really important. Um, so that's usually step one, because that can cut the nerves, that can be fun, that can be all of the, and it's really important because we're gonna pull from it like almost immediately. Uh, then I like to have the student athlete talk to me about the, the, the context, the environment, talk to me about it. Is it warm, is it hot, is it sunny? Is it too cold because it's climate controlled? Talk to me about all the sensory stuff that you know. Um, what do you smell? What do you taste? What do you feel? How does the turf feel under your feet? Is it, is it concrete right under the turf or do you have some rubber under the turf? Is it soft? You know, just really pulling from all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I tell them straight up at the beginning, Hey, if you don't know something, it's okay. If you don't know, it'd be better to say you don't know than to guess or to lie. Um, because we're heavily depending on your memory on this. So okay. If you don't know it, Okay, great. So we get into it, get all the information. Uh, and then I like to, to actually just ask them to walk me through what typically happens. And I like to, in my mind, explore the spectrum. Okay, uh, so this is what typically happens. What's the worst that could happen? What's the best that could happen? Uh, because again, I'm gonna be the one guiding them and I, I've never thrown a, a fastball at 95 miles an hour. I don't, I don't know what that's like, but if you give me a lot of good information, I can kind of push you through the door and their brain is going to take care of the rest. And so lots of information gathering. But again, this whole process we talked about might only take five minutes or 10 minutes. Um, it, it, it's not an hour, um, at least not, not most times. So from there, um, I, I ask them if they feel comfortable, close their eyes. I think a lot of times it's yes. But in either case, I would say, well, I'm going to look over here. Go ahead, close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And I really never look at them. So I, I assume they close their eyes, I don't know. Um, and, and I say, okay, take a couple deep breaths, however you naturally know how, um, and they do. Um, if we've already gone through some breathing stuff in the past, I try to lean on that, okay, in through your nose, out through your mouth. Sometimes I guide, through, guide it through them anyway. Um, a lot of kind of basic beginner kind of mindful breathing kind of techniques. And this is really just to calm the system down because ultimately we want to, to control, if we can, um, as, as much of their internal uh, ability to see things and feel things as we can and let the rest of the clutter just be there, just naturally dissipate, go away. Um, 
in an ideal world, they're hearing my voice, but even my voice is starting to drone out as they're getting deeper and deeper into the script. And uh, yeah, from there, we just started. And so I like to, they, they've, they've, you know, gotten centered for maybe 30, 40 seconds. Um, and I just, at, at that point, I have a lot of information. So I don't say I, I wing it, but I kind of just say like, all right, so, you know, it's, Saturday the 23rd, you're this and this, and you're this and this, and this is what you're describing. I've got the picture I'm looking at, I'm describing it. And then I say, you know, and then I, whatever it is, I, I lead them up to it. And as soon as I can no longer, as soon as it would be uh, not beneficial for me to talk about what they're doing, because it would slow the process down. For instance, pitching, like I'm not going to say ever to them, like, notice your wrist over your elbow and notice your, your hand releasing you'd already be on, on pitch number two by then, right? So I like to set up the context and then I, I tell them, hey, go ahead, uh, go through three pitches when, you, when, you, when you're done, take a deep breath, open your eyes. Then we debrief, hey, how'd it go? A lot better than I think. Okay, what does that mean? Take some notes down and then we get some reps and, and really I try to hyper-focus the visualization as we can. Um, but the exception, this is a long-winded answer, but the exception being, uh, like in endurance sports, um, for instance, I, I had some um, some 500 meter swimmers who they were doing some visualization scripts. And, and really the cool thing was by the end of the season, I would set the context up. They'd be lying on the floor. Lights are down, just a few of them. And I'd say, all right, you're on the blocks, you know, and then we sound an alarm because we had one there and boom, and they would go into it. And honestly, it was incredible that each of them would finish their visualization within five seconds of their actual goal time. Like, and, and this is minutes and minutes of, of their visualization. It's not, it's not, it's not, you know, 30 seconds, it's four minutes, five, whatever it was. And like the number one swimmer finished before the other ones, but not excessively. And you're like, wow, very, very crisp. During our interview, I drew a connection between the work that performance psychologists like Dr. Clark do and the process of telling a story. Dr. Clark says that until that point, he never really considered himself a storyteller, but that the moniker might just stick. You know, no one's ever asked me that. that that's a, I like that. Um, my wife would say yes. Um, and I would probably have to agree. Um, you know, again, it's not my story to, to tell. It, it is their story, but just as they've let me in, now it's my job to take that and to do something with it. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely fun. It's a fun part of the job. Um, on occasion, I'll get I'll get called on it and say like, oh yeah, like that that's never happened to me. It's like, okay, we'll take it out, no big deal. Um, but I, I do think it is kind of uh, within my nature to, yeah, to, to tell some stories. And I think in the visualization space, I think it could benefit. When he's working through visualization scripts, he likes to keep them individualized. Demographic changes like class, position on the field of play, and starting experience are all factors that completely change the way Dr. Clark approaches these sessions. Even if two athletes play for the same team and furthermore play the same position, there are always minor tweaks. That info gathering part is, is where it starts to change, right? Because you've got the senior pitcher and you've got the freshman pitcher. Um, they may have the exact same concern. In fact, they may be 
uh, one and two in a lineup or right next to each other in the bullpen warming up. Like it happens all the time, um, you know, but, but the way they see it can be a lot different as well. And sometimes the things we're hyper-focusing on can also be different. Uh, for instance, one guy might want to get, might want to get his velo way up. So he's just focusing on just getting power out versus maybe another guy is working on his changeup, polar opposite. Hey, can we get this thing super slow over the plate? Um, so it changes. It definitely changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of times when I'm like, this is feeling eerily similar. Yeah. But, but again, that's okay. Right. Because in that case, if we've done all the info gathering, and the two cases are really similar, then they're just going through this very similar concern. This work fuels Dr. Clark's fire, and he can't imagine being anywhere else but within the student-athlete sphere. Eight years I've worked toward being in the position I'm in today. Um, you know, I as soon as I learned about sports psychology, I, I knew that the collegiate space was where I wanted to at least start and to spend a good amount of time in. It's not, to me, this isn't a stepping stone of like, leaving someone right away. It's like, no, I, I want to be in college sports. I love college sports, but recognizing like have a little bit of flexibility, Mike, like maybe in 10 years, it's not the same way and that's okay too. But in either case, I knew it was college sports and, you know, I, I like the, I like the division one level. That's just where I've spent the most of my time as an athlete and all my training. And, uh, you know, I'm an avid trail runner still. So like, I'm literally looking at the Tucson mountain range outside of my like office at home, you know, and it's like, I get to live in a really cool place and do a really cool job with people who also are really invested. So uh, I'm not just saying that in case, like one of my administrators is listening to this, like I'm really not like uh, I have pinched myself like every day, like knowing that this is my job. That's the end of episode 33 of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellon. Thanks so much for tuning in to Dr. Mike Clark's story. If you or anyone you know has a story they'd like to share, send us a direct message at CloserMental on Instagram and Twitter. Tune in next week when I bring on race car driver Christian Rose to talk about sustaining focus over many, many, many laps. But until then, see you next week. Music